everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jennifer Jensen Wallach about her new book, Getting What We Need Ourselves, How Food Has Shaped African-American Life, out June 2019 from Roman and Littlefield Publishers. Jennifer is Associate Professor of History at the University of North Texas. She's the author of several books, including How America Eats, A Social History of U.S. Food and Culture, and Every Nation Has Its Dish, Black Bodies and Black Food in 20th Century America. She's the editor of Dethroning the Deceitful Pork Chop, Rethinking African-American Foodways from Slavery to Obama, which won the Association for the Study of Food and Society's Book Award in 2017. Along with Michael D. Wise, Jennifer co-edits the University of Arkansas Press book series, Food and Foodways. She's also the 20 and 21st century North America editor for the History Compass. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi, Carrie. Thanks so much for talking to me about my new book. Sure. Full disclosure, Jen is the editor of my book, Inventing Authenticity. Uh, It was truly a pleasure to work with you on that project, and I'm excited to talk to you today about yours. Well, I will have to say it was a fantastic book, Carrie, and it was a pleasure to work with you. So this is just a love fest. So glad we get to speak today. (laughs) So we usually start these interviews with some background. Uh, So Jennifer, your first book, uh, Closer to the Truth Than Any Fact, uh, looks at African-American memoir and life writing as kind of a historical evidence. So how did you get from there to history and food studies? Um, that's a good question. I mean, in, in my mind, they're kind of linked because I was initially sort of interested in the book on memoirs, on subjectivity and felt experience and, you know, what it was like to be a historical subject in any given moment. I was trying to think about what historical reality is, and I was conceptualizing it as being sort of made up by all of these different subjectivities that saw the same events really, really differently. And when I was started to think about subjectivity, I started to think about bodies. And then once I started thinking about bodies, it wasn't much of a leap to start thinking about food. I mean, what do we need to sustain those bodies? Um, but what really sort of pushed me to saying, I'm not only going to kind of think about bodies and food, but I'm really going to focus and study this subject is when I was in graduate school, actually, um, same time I was thinking about memoirs, I read Merle Evers' memoir about the death of her husband, the civil rights activist Medgar Evers. Um, he was, of course, murdered, shot down in the family driveway. Um, and she writes about that event. And one of the details just made a huge impression on me. She talks about the fact that one of the bullets um, from the gun that, that was used to kill him Um, landed in the kitchen on the counter next to a watermelon. And she wrote, even on that day, even the most horrific thing that could ever happen, I mean, there's blood on the driveway, her children are inside, her husband's been murdered. The thought went through her head, what are the white policemen going to think when they see that watermelon? Oh, wow. So, yeah. So I thought, wow, you know, food and those stereotypes and the meaning attached to Eating and identity is so deep and so heavy that even in such a traumatic moment, she was thinking about that. So I thought, you know, I got to look more into this. And then, you know, once you ask that question, food's everywhere. So that was kind of the starting point. And, you know, everything I read from there on out, I I saw references to food. Um, So that's really the starting point, I guess. 
Yeah, and I can still leave that early work uh, in this book because you often draw on memoirs and slave narratives and other firsthand accounts um, as a part of your source material. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a line from that first project to, although when I was going up for tenure, I remember having to sort of make that case. It didn't seem obvious to, to others, but it's obvious to me that, that they're connected. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that one of the key arguments of getting what we need ourselves is that there's not one story of African-American foodways. And you write that really eloquently. Um, I'll probably quote you a lot today because uh, you have such a beautiful way of putting sentences together. Um, you say the history of black food traditions can be most accurately conceptualized as a web of ongoing conversations, debates, and reinventions, rather than as a single uninterrupted line leading directly back to the African continent. So why do you think that direct line is so appealing to us? And why is the web a more useful way of thinking about it? Um, you know, I think that's such a complicated question, and it's one that I tried to sort of grapple with. Um, one of the things that I really was struck with as I first got um, interested in African-American food in particular was the narrative of soul food. Such a powerful narrative, such a powerful story. Um, and it's a way to sort of um, elevate um, or maybe elevate is not the right word, but it's used as a way to sort of um, highlight dignity and survival and kinship and belonging and all of these just sort of wonderful affirming virtues. Um, trying to show that, you know, the trauma, the horrors of slavery resulted in the creation of this distinct group of people, this distinct culture. And, you know, it's a really beautiful idea, soul food. And it's also, though, when we use it to talk about an earlier moment, a historical, right? It's a, it's a concept that doesn't get created until the 1960s. And it comes out of a particular political moment um, where, you know, the, the civil rights movement, the disillusionment from um, promises, you know, not really fulfilled. Um, it, it's a way to sort of show, you can see I'm kind of stumbling over this because I know it, it's, it's, it's a concept that means a lot to people. And so one of the things in this book, what I was doing is saying, um, this is a story, but it's become sort of the loudest story and it's not the only one. Um, so I, what I'm trying to do, and I guess what makes me kind of um, um, sort of, delicate about this. What I'm trying to do is to give that story the power and the respect and love that it deserves, but also to say that it's not the only story. That people today get a lot of sort of comfort and meaning out of that concept, but that wasn't how people before 1960 thought about their food habits. So by using sort of the web metaphor, I'm trying to say, yeah, that single soul food story um, going back to Africa is really important, but it wasn't important to everybody. And in fact, a lot of people felt really alienated by it, um, didn't identify with it. So my web metaphor was a way to say um, the story that always gets a play in the media isn't the only story. Right. Uh, I appreciate your emphasis on both roots, R-O-O-T-S, and roots, R-O-U-T-E-S. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was really kind of beautiful. Uh, so I write about cookbooks, as you know, that often try to tell the history of ingredients that have their origins in Africa. 
or dishes that were innovated by enslaved cooks in the South. And it has always bothered me the passive way that they describe these things, right? That yams are from Africa, yeah. but but you're leaving out a lot if you don't mention the Middle, ma- middle Passage or like okra came to the South all by itself. Uh, so <laughs> I appreciate, you know, this focus on both the origin point and all of those movements that it made in between. So what difference does that make in how you tell the story of African-American foodways to have both roots and roots? Um, I think it makes a lot of difference because, and again, what I guess I I worry about is being overly romantic. You know, there's this sort of myth about, you know, an enslaved person putting seeds in her hair um, and bringing those seeds, transplanting them, creating this tradition that then gets reimagined in the 1960s as, as soul food. When really, of course, the process of enslavement was traumatic. You know, people couldn't grab seeds, right? They couldn't self-consciously try to recreate that heritage. But seeds did make it across the Atlantic, right? But they weren't carried by captives. They were carried by the captors. And the the seeds that made it over weren't necessarily the preferred ones, weren't necessarily what people would choose. Um, But they did use them, of course, to recreate taste of home. They also really creatively um, used American ingredients like the sweet potato to try to create those things. But I mean, you're right. It's not a passive um, um, thing. Those, Those ingredients were brought here, but they weren't brought by the captives themselves. They were brought by the enslavers. So I think that it's really important to remember that. Yeah, I thought that was probably the most uh, important piece that I took away from the book was the way that you recover the role of enslavers in moving humans and moving food from Africa to North America. They were the ones who were loading the ships with food. Um, They uh, adopted African foods into their diet. And that seems really, as you say, important to de-romanticize and rehumanize those origin stories. Uh, So say a little bit more about, about what it means to you to kind of recover that role. Um, I guess, and I guess one of the things that I guess I've sort of found kind of um, in need of complication about this whole kind of narrative of this one style of African-American eating was that there's something really essentialist about this. I mean, at the core, this idea that there's one black way of eating isn't really any different from any other kind of stereotype when we see that there's really lots of diversity. And what I didn't want to create was a portrait of enslaved people as sort of cultural conservatives, you know, that only wanted to recreate the one taste or the one way of eating that they knew. Instead, they were people partially by circumstances, largely by circumstances who had to adapt and create new things. But they were people like all of us, you know, who were interested in new tastes, right? That um, adapted because they had to, but also like all people adapted because they wanted to, because they were exposed to new things. So I just kind of wanted to capture how traumatic this process was of creating African-American food, but also how really dynamic that there were lots of ideas, that it was a complicated process and there wasn't just ever one story. 
Right. And I think that is related to another point that you make in that first chapter about how even before the transatlantic slave trade, that Africa as a continent was really enmeshed in a global food network already um, by bringing in uh, Asian rice and the peanut from the North America. That was already happening. Um, So how is our idea of of African foodways complicated by thinking about about Africa that way? I think I think it's incredibly complicated because I think that if we give a lot of credence to an origination story, um, then we're kind of imagining that there's a moment where things were stationary. And that's not what culture is. Culture is not stationary. I mean, it isn't something, a possession that you just can hold. It's something that's dynamic, that changes, that grows. So looking for starting points is is pretty much impossible because there's not a stationary moment in history. History is a process. So I guess I wanted to to complicate this idea that yeah, this yes, it all starts in Africa, but what does that mean? Because it African food culture, all culture is shifting. Right. In the in the second chapter, you're focusing on the era of slavery in the United States and the, the processes of creolization and fusion of African foodways into what would become African-American foodways. Um, you emphasize in that chapter that the innovations in foodways are what you call cultural compromises between what enslaved people wanted to eat, what ingredients were available, what control they had over their own diets. Um, can you remember maybe any of the dishes or ingredients that kind of illustrate that kind of compromise? Well, I've already mentioned the sweet potato, which I guess is sort of the, the core example that scholars studying African-American food history use as a food of compromise. Because in North America, um, African yams wouldn't grow. And they were, of course, the staple for large numbers of African captives. So they found sort of the closest thing, which is the southern sweet potato doesn't really look similar, doesn't really taste the same way, but was the closest sort of approximation. So I think that that's an example of, you know, being dynamic, being creative, taking an idea, um, but not being so stuck in that idea that you can't um, see new possibilities. So I think that that's probably the classic example. It's also in that chapter that you kind of cautioned us not to not to like draw the the lines too brightly, right? When we're thinking about the network or where things moved, um, you give the example of the the tamale yeah. in the Mississippi Delta, um, so that that it's entirely plausible that cooks living on different locations of the globe would devise similar ways to prepare the same ingredients. Um, so, what do you think is significant about that example of the tamale, and and why resist making those definitive statements about about origins? Um. I guess as a historian, those definitive statements about origins just kind of um, worry me because um, I guess I'm always worried in this topic about, you know, sort of um, essentializing people and assuming that because of where people came from, that that's the only place that they're drawing ideas from because that's not true. You know, you, um, knowing how to cook, knowing how to eat, it's not something that's, that's in your DNA that's, that's sort of born into you. This is something that, you know, to prepare a recipe, um, it's, it's 
trial and error. It's a process. And, you know, frankly, when you're looking at ingredients, there are really only so many possibilities, right? There are only so many ways that you can cook an item like corn. So, I mean, it only makes sense that given the same ingredient, people in different spaces, whether or not they interacted with each other, might come up with something kind of similar. And I think that the various preparations of of corn flour maize that I mentioned um, in the chapter, I talked about, you know, a Cherokee steamed cornbread. I talked about tamales going back to the Aztecs. I talked about an African version. Um, They're all a little bit different, but um, they're they're ultimately pretty similar. And I think that that just goes back to just, you know, just the straight up fact that there are only so many things you can do with cornmeal. So I think that sometimes in our desire to tell these really straightforward, linear stories, um, you know, this led to this led to that, that we kind of forget just this common sense truth that, you know, there are only so many ways to cook stuff. I think that's a great point, and especially because the the kinds of things that you're talking about in that chapter are the same things that I see, you know, popular food writers and cookbook writers trying to tell those stories. So it's not just historians who are trying to tell the stories of these foods. It's kind of all of us. Yeah. We want neat and tidy stories, and history is anything but. But um, to me, that's what's sort of exciting about history is that. there are lots of, of possibilities and the dynamics are really complicated. And I think that it oversimplifies groups of people, oversimplifies individuals if we act like there's just one story because there's not. And I think that that has sort of what that's what's happened um, in the telling of African-American food history. A lot of times this soul food story is so powerful that sometimes we lose some of these smaller stories that I tried to to cover in the book as well. Yeah, so um, you know, kind of throughout that story of of enslavement and slavery, you you talk about hunger a lot, right? And the 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 inability to secure to secure food, um, and that continues into the following chapters on. Uh, after the Civil War and emancipation. So what were some of the kind of uh, affordances of freedom when it came to diet? And what were some of those limitations? Well, I think that one of, as a way to answer that, one of one of the sources that I think everybody ends up using who writes about slavery are the um, Workers' Progress Administration slave narratives collected in the 1930s throughout the South um, by federal workers. And they're complicated sources. I mean, for one reason, a lot of the people doing the interviewing of former enslaved people were white. So there was a really complicated racial dynamic going on. So we have to ask lots of questions about um, how freely formerly enslaved people in the still very segregated South um, could answer white interviewers. Um, But one of the other things that I think everybody who looks at these notes is that there are lots of descriptions of slavery that make it sound not quite as dismal in every aspect as you would expect. And there's definitely no nostalgia for slavery, no desire to go back to slavery. But there are these these stories about sort of childhood that don't sound as severe as you would expect talking to somebody who had lived through, you know, human bondage. 
And one of the particular things that stands out is there are lots and lots of descriptions of food and um, what it was like to eat as an enslaved person. And so for a lot of these people writing or talking in the 1930s in the middle of the Great Depression are hungry, and they actually look back really fondly to the food of their childhood, the food of enslavement, which it's complicated and it's hard to think about. But for so many people, freedom meant greater hunger. So I think that we have this um, sense that enslaved people were hungry. And some were, for sure, absolutely. Anybody who's read Frederick Douglass, you know, has read his really powerful descriptions of being hungry while enslaved. I mean, deeply, deeply hungry. But we also have to remember that the purpose of slavery was to, you know, make money for the slaveholders. You know, these human bodies were used as machines, And slaveholders were very calculating and tried to make sure that these human bodies that they saw as machines would function well. So enslaved people generally had enough to eat. Doesn't mean that they had diversity, although sometimes they did, usually through their own ingenuity. But for the most part, hunger is not the overwhelming story in the antebellum period of slavery. Definitely there is hunger. I can point to lots and lots of examples. But for the most part, people are eating enough. Um, And that's not necessarily going to be the case after emancipation. So for a lot of people, emancipation means hunger and a new and different kind of hunger as they have to try to figure out, you know, how to feed themselves and feed their family. Um, From the point of view of white supremacy, you know, enslaved bodies were valuable, but bodies of freed people aren't in the same crass economic way. So there isn't the same incentive among the ruling class to make sure that people are well fed. So for a lot of people, freedom means hunger. Doesn't mean that they would go back to slavery. In fact, a lot of people say very clearly, I'd rather die, I'd rather starve, I'd rather do anything than be enslaved. But for a lot of people, freedom is going to mean hunger. One of the things you, you point out in the book is that the ability to control land uh, and how it is used for agriculture is really a big determiner of whether freedom means hunger or yeah. plenty. Will you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I mean, of course. Um, the number one thing that enslaved people wanted, if we can generalize, is they wanted land. They wanted land reform. And we know that didn't happen in any meaningful way. But some enslaved people do manage to become landowners. And when they manage to become landowners, despite all the odds, you know, they eat better. They can decide how um, they control the land that they own. Um, the system of sharecropping is, you know, pernicious for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons that it was so harmful is that sharecroppers didn't have a lot of say about how they used the land that they sharecropped. So whether or not they could have a garden, whether or not they could hunt, whether or not they could use the land that they worked on to produce food was up to the landowner who didn't have the same kind of economic incentive to keep those bodies healthy as that landowner would have when they were enslaved. 
So there's a lot of vulnerability. Um, sharecroppers, you know, there are lots of accounts of, you know, sharecroppers who have garden plots, who do hunt, who do have a diverse, great diet. But there are also lots of stories of people who don't have those privileges and, you know, starve, you know, or on the verge of starvation, particularly as we get towards the Great Depression. Um, so being able to control the land is a huge part of the story. And I, I should just mention, you know, this is a story. I mean, this is Jim Crow. This is one of the brutal, most brutal, bleakest, difficult moments in U.S. history. But there certainly are black landowners who managed to acquire a lot of property, who managed to become pretty prosperous, who have really diverse, fantastic, wonderful diets. So we can find examples of that. And again, it just points back to this idea that there isn't a single story. Um, so there are certainly extremes to be seen. There's, there's hunger, but there are also people who have really rich, diverse diets. Um, would you talk a little bit more about kind of women, uh, specifically, um, in that chapter, you talk about how the kind of popular racist view of, of black cooking is instinctive or inherent or somehow in the DNA. Uh, it worked both kind of for and against black cooks, especially domestic workers who are women. Uh, so how did, uh, women negotiate those conditions of, of cooking for white employers? Yeah, it's, I mean, a really complicated story. And I think one that Rebecca Sharpless has told better than anybody um, in her book, um, Cooking in Other Women's Kitchens. Um, but African-American women do have to contend with this, this stereotype that Black people are innately talented cooks. Um, and like any other skill, cooking has to be learned. And so... Um, African-American women um, had to try to figure out how to satisfy their employers um, and how to feed their families. And, you know, some were obviously fantastic cooks, but um, like, like anything else, this was a skill that had to be learned. Yeah. In the next chapter, you kind of talk about the Jim Crow era. Um, what role did food play in the advancement of the African-American middle class when so often foods were used in racist portrayals? Um, how did they use their own food choices to negotiate class? Yeah, to me, this is one of the most sort of fascinating chapters in African-American food history um, because African-American reformers very quickly see that food is a really powerful identifier of class, of social status. So you see Black activists like Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois in ways that I think have sort of been overlooked by historians um, before, they're using food as sort of a political tool, as a way to sort of differentiate the status of freed people from that of enslaved people. Um, for example, Booker T. Washington at the Tuskegee Institute is really adamant about what he thinks his students should have the right to eat. So he's really very self-consciously trying to um, engage in a dialogue with white domestic scientists who at the same moment are really using food and ideas about food um, as a tool 
and their sort of attempts to help immigrants assimilate to the United States. So we see food reformers throughout the country, but particularly in like New England, um, trying to convince new arrivals to the United States to eat so-called American food, things like beef and white bread as a way to assimilate, as a way to demonstrate um, their Americanness. And Booker T. Washington is really a part of this conversation and has kind of similar ideas and goals for his students. So at on the Tuskegee tables, he's interested in making sure that foods like beef and white bread have a really prominent place on the table alongside more traditionally Southern foods like pork and cornbread. So he wants his students to be able to eat these foods of Americanization as a way to show um, their status and also as a way to sort of transform their bodies. I mean, he thinks that these, these, foods are more healthful, that they'll actually make black bodies stronger and and healthier. So he sees food as very much sort of a, a political tool, a way to advance the race. This is also kind of an era of, of black entrepreneurship in, in food um, and cooking and catering. Are there any of those figures you think we should know more about? Um, you know, there are so many entrepreneurs, um, and you know, so many of them that, you know, we only know snippets about, um, but, um, so I don't know if I can think off the top of my head. I mean, one person, I mean, I guess Pig Feet Mary is a person who's really well known for her. She made a fortune selling, um, basically soul food in, in Harlem, but there are, I mean, even beginning during the era of slavery, there were so many people who used their cooking skills, their learned cooking skills, not their innate ones, their learned cooking skills to um, sell prepared foods at market, to sell produce, to sell livestock. Um, there were enslaved people who bought their freedom through um, their food entrepreneurship. Um, so throughout African-American history, there's this, this thread of, of culinary entrepreneurship, of people owning small grocery stores, of people owning, you know, um, food carts, of restaurants, of, you know, catering businesses. In Philadelphia, there's this long, deep, rich history of black caterers. So, I mean, basically from sort of day one, um, we see culinary entrepreneurship. Uh, so in the era of the Great Migration, how how did that movement alter African-American foodways? Uh, and how did those movements of African-Americans change the landscape of the food where they relocated to? Yeah, that's this is a really rich and complicated moment in African-American culinary history. Because, of course, you've got literally millions of people leaving the South for urban centers for the North, and they're going to bring their food with them. And what's interesting to me is, you know, the migrants kind of like all people, it's a complicated story. You know, there are millions of migrants, millions of stories. So some people don't think much about food at all, right? I mean, like now for some people, you know, they just eat what's there. It's not anything that, you know, they just want, they're just worried about food, not what it is. For other people, 
they see leaving the South as a way to sort of leave behind Southern ways of life, to leave behind things that are going to remind them of slavery. This is kind of the Booker T. Washington school. So we have people who, when they get a chance, sort of radically change how they eat. Instead of eating these sort of Southern homegrown foods, they become more interested in industrial foods or these, you know, stereotypically, I'm putting quotes around this American foods that I mentioned before, like beef and white bread. They want to change. Um, For other people, when they get to these new urban centers, the foods of their childhood, of their youth, these Southern foods take on this sort of new resonance and this new significance. And they think about them in a way different from how they thought about them before. You know, the foods of the Southern table, you know, things like greens and cornbread in the South, they were just food. But in urban centers where different people ate differently, all of a sudden, People started to think, hey, maybe this is kind of unique to us. Maybe this is something special. Maybe this is something that is we can use to identify ourselves. So we see in the process of the Great Migration the seeds of this idea of soul food, this idea of a distinctly Black culinary tradition emerging. Um, and it's also important to mention that this idea of a distinctly Black way of eating also emerges out of class conflicts within the Black community because sort of more assimilated, more middle class, more northern African Americans, you know, didn't eat this way. And some of them were kind of, not kind of, but were embarrassed, were mortified by sort of the country ways, as they would sort of frame it, of these migrants. Um, They're own position, these more middle class or more northern African Americans, their own position in their their cultures they lived in was tenuous. And they were afraid that these people with a different way of life, um, a way of life that they saw as sometimes more backwards, might sort of threaten their really delicate place in the social structure. So for example, if you look at the Chicago Defender during the era of the Great Migration, There are so many, I mean, sort of from the perspective of of today, very sort of snide references to the foodways of the rural South, really snide um, descriptions of of Southern food, you know, eating offal and like other parts of of the pork, of pig. Um, So there, it's sort of um, in this context of this class war, Um, We see rural migrants saying, you're making me feel lesser, but actually this food is distinctive and it's important to me. Right. So moving forward into the civil rights era and the black freedom struggle, food plays a central role as a method of protest. So like the sit-ins for the segregated restaurants that you write really beautifully about, um, also as a source of comfort and common identity uh, and a weapon used against black yeah. protesters. So what do you think? Let's start with the, the lunch counter sit-ins. What is it about that moment that's so symbolically powerful? You know, the lunch counters, I mean, there, there's just so much to unpack. I mean, it's when you're thinking about food history, I mean, how significant that the first really large um, student-led mass demonstrations in the 1960s centered around access to food. And what's interesting to me is particularly as we think again about this sort of narrative about what Black food is. Um, is the food that protesters were were fighting for access to at these lunch counters were these sort of quintessentially, you know, 
mid 20th century American food, you know, things like that you eat at lunch counters, you know, Coca-Cola and, you know, hamburgers, things like that, things that have functioned as symbols of being Americans. And those student protesters you were fighting for access to those symbols of Americanization on equal terms. Um, Ella Baker wrote this really famous essay, the civil rights activist Ella Baker, bigger than a hamburger, where she said, you know, what we're fighting for is more than just a hamburger, which of course that's true, right? I mean, I don't want to trivialize this. Of course they're fighting for, you know, human rights is what Ella Baker says. But I don't think that we should overlook um, the symbolic significance of what it meant to be able to sit at a counter and order an American item like a Coke on equal terms with other people. So I don't think that the food for sale was incidental. I think that it was incredibly powerfully symbolic. And at that phase of the civil rights movement, you know, people are fighting for that full national corporation that is symbolized in a lot of ways by those food items. Along with that, you also describe feeding civil rights workers as a form of support for the movement uh, and that food security was a major goal of the fight for civil rights, uh, a problem that it could be solved. Um, So how did food sharing sustain the struggle and what are some of the plans for providing food for impoverished African-Americans at this time? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the stories that I hope to sort of uncover or sort of highlight in in the chapter of the book about the civil rights movement was the really astonishing and remarkable lengths that ordinary people went to to support the civil rights movement. Because I think we think about supporting the civil rights movement um, in terms of sort of overtly political actions, you know, registering to vote, marching, things like that. But one of the most profound ways that rural Southerners supported that movement was by feeding activists who came to the region and often at great personal sacrifice. Um, Food insecurity was a real issue for African-Americans, rural African-Americans in places like Mississippi. Yet there's story after story after story of very poor people um, hosting civil rights activists in their homes and sharing with them whatever little that they had. Um, so this wasn't, you know, trivial. This was really sacrificial and um, an enormous way that local people supported the movement. They also brought food to, you know, incarcerated civil rights activists, people who were arrested for participating in freedom rides or other kind of confrontations. They would cook for them, you know, bring them food to jail. I mean, so this was just a really powerful way that um, local people supported the movement. Um, and you, what was the second part of that, Carrie? Um, about the plans that they had for providing food for impoverished African Americans. Yeah. Yeah. So food is often, you know, food is so multifaceted. I mean, here in the in the example of caring for um, civil rights workers, we see it as a way to, you know physically, tangibly support the movement. We see it as a way to build community, but it's also used often as a weapon. So one thing that white Southerners did to fight against civil rights progress was to really tighten their grip on the food supply in a lot of places, um, which in places like Mississippi could mean making it more difficult for impoverished African-Americans to get um, government commodity foods. 
um, in the Southern agricultural calendar, you know, there were there were moments where sharecroppers, where cash was scarce, um, where crops were scarce, where the food supply was low. And so one way that people would often make up for that, that shortfall, that lean period, was to rely on government commodity foods. So white Southerners, to try to you know, stop civil rights progress would tighten their grip on that food, make sure people couldn't access that food. And there were literally people, you know, on the brink of starvation in places like Mississippi in the 1960s because of this. So we start to see organizations like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee um, getting food donations, you know, trucking food into Mississippi, feeding people, you know, very concretely making food and food access a civil rights issue. And in the late 1960s, you know, after the landmark civil rights legislation, after those really tangible victories had been won, we see local civil rights activists, people like Fannie Lou Hamer, continuing to conceptualize of food and food access as a key civil rights issue. So in the case of Hamer, she works really hard to set up a cooperative farm and a pig bank where local people can, you know, come and get a pig and, you know, raise the pig, give some of the pig's offspring back to the bank. So they start to really tangibly try to find ways to provide food for themselves. Um, And in fact, the title of the book, Getting What We Need Ourselves, is a quote from Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, because she realizes by the late 1960s, you know, the system's not going to feed us, that we have to find these really creative and innovative ways to do it ourselves. Right. And you've already alluded to a couple of different times that this is the era of the emergence of soul food. Um, and you've also kind of mentioned its its contested nature as a term, uh, as a concept. Um, so what accounts for the emergence of soul food as a racially specific trans-regional cuisine at this moment? Um, what's interesting about soul food as a concept, and I, I just want to make this the point clear that I think I I respect the concept, I respect the tradition. I think it's powerful, it's meaningful, particularly for people born, I would say after 1960, that's kind of when this concept gets created. If you're born after that period, this um, concept exists, it has power, it has resonance, it has sort of political meaning. Um, before that, people born before that period, they have to sort of learn soul food. So what's really interesting to me about 1960 is you start to see references in black newspapers to soul food. But what's curious from our, you know, 21st century standpoint is that it's always defined. You know, this isn't a concept that, you know, people take for granted. So you'll always see soul food comma, something like the traditional food of Southern African-Americans or soul food. And then there'll be sort of a list of kind of the down-home items that are part of the soul food table. So you can see this really self-conscious attempt to create a concept. And it's, it's part of the sort of cultural nationalism of the, of the time period as a way for people of African descent to say, hey, we don't have a political nation, but we do have a cultural one. And it's a way of people sort of defining what that culture looks like. So you see this really self-conscious moment of creation of this, this really powerful concept um, in the 1960s. 
Yeah, and as you've mentioned, it's not 100% um, embraced immediately. So what are some of those points of tension around soul food as a term then and then maybe now? Um, you know, it's it's not embraced immediately, although it's embraced pretty wholeheartedly. Um, you know, the concept wins. You know, there are people initially who aren't sold on the idea, but I mean, now you just, you know, Google soul food, right? When you think about black food, that's that's the concept that, that comes up. So, I mean, in a way, it won. And so even the people that were sort of like Eldridge Cleaver in the 60s was always kind of snarling, saying things like, I wish all the people that prattle on about soul food really did have to survive on that. You know, his point was, is that we've been working for economic advancement and, you know, we should be trying to eat things like steak and not romanticizing these foods that... Um, are linked very directly to the cuisine of deprivation, the cuisine of slavery. They're also sort of in the early 1960s kind of comical um, depictions of African-American middle-class people um, going to soul food restaurants for the first time. You know, the doctors and the lawyers in the community all of a sudden discovering this food that if it had been part of their family's way of eating, it had been one that they discarded, but they're sort of rediscovering it. So it's this really enormously creative and exciting moment of um, rediscovery for some people. For many people, they've been eating soul food their whole life. They were just now learning in the 1960s how to think of it in a different way as something that could signify creativity, resiliency, group membership. So um, for some people, it's a new thing. For other people, it's just a new reframing, but it's an incredibly powerful one. Now, there are, of course, and maybe this is what you're alluding to, some people who really overtly um, try to push back against the creation of the idea of soul food. And I'm thinking of, for example, the Nation of Islam, um, the Honorable right, Elijah that's Muhammad. What I was of. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So he he's not a fan of soul food. Um, so he tells his adherents not to eat not only pork, which is, of course, a, a forbidden food for Islamic people, but he also tells them not to eat things like, you know, black-eyed peas, cornbread, um, the really common foods of the Southern table. Um, he frames these foods as not being healthy. Um, he frames these as being foods of slavery and really strongly urges people to look for other ways of eating. The, the epilogue of the book kind of brings us into the present uh, through the figure of Chef Marcus Samuelson, who's born in Ethiopia. He's adopted by white Swedish parents. Um, and now he's famous as a Harlem restaurateur. Yeah. Uh, what about him is interesting to you? How is he sort of the in inheritor of all this history? Uh, and what do you think his example tells us about the status of African-American food today? Yeah, what I think his example shows us is just how sort of dynamic and exciting food culture is. I mean, he's drawing his inspiration from all over the globe, um, but also from, you know, the American South. I mean, his restaurant, in a lot of ways, it's it's a riff on soul food, right? It's a, it's a global take. It's soul food plus all of these things. So I, I love that figure because I think that he highlights the fact that um, African-American food has always been dynamic. It's always been global. It's always been in the midst of lots and lots of conversations. You know, it's not ever been just one thing. So I think that he epitomizes that. 
But he's not without critics. Uh, what are some of those kind of critical points of view that you highlight in the book? Um, I, I couldn't resist um, mentioning um, Eddie Wong is really, you know, beautifully written because everything he writes is beautifully written, but really snarky review of the Red Rooster, Marcus Samuelson's Harlem Restaurant. Um, where he talks about, you know, how expensive it is, you know, it costs 38 bucks to get fried chicken. And he accuses him of sort of being an outsider, not being in touch with the neighborhood of thinking that soul food needed to be improved upon. Um, But that critique was, you know, there were rejoinders for other African-Americans saying, you know, oh, yeah, right. We would never want to go to a nice restaurant with a good wine list. Right. So there's pushback against maybe Wong trying to sort of limit and essentialize and make African-American food small when the argument could be. And I mean, I think it's a pretty um, justifiable argument that there are lots of ways of eating. And Marcus Samuelson's is one way. And um, we don't have to limit and essentialize, but um, emphasize the variety and the complexity. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned is that what makes him so interesting as as an African-American cook is that he doesn't have a a family history of of the experience of African-Americans in America, right? He doesn't have uh, an inherited um, memory of slavery. And so he's sort of creating soul food outside of that narrative in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that gets, I mean, that gets to so many sort of complicated questions. And, you know, honestly, I don't know if it would have occurred to me to end the book um, with him if um, I hadn't read Jessica Harris's book, her, her, her overview of African-American history, High on the Hog, where she sort of ends with a nod to him saying, hey, the most famous African-American chef um, doesn't have a, a history, a tie to, to enslavement, to captivity. And her reframing of it sort of made me want to reframe it that way and to realize that these stories are complex, right? Once again, there's not a single story. And, you know, this restaurant is in Harlem. I mean, he's dedicated to um, employing people from the neighborhood. He's certainly nodding to dishes from the African diaspora. So, I mean, I think he definitely deserves a place in African-American food history. But I have to say it was maybe pushing my conceptualization a little bit to see his place. But I think he, he deserves to be there. And to end the book with him sort of seemed appropriate to me. Yeah. Well, what project are you working on next? Oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm sort of playing around with, and I probably don't know enough to talk about it um, in in a, a coherent way. But I'm thinking a lot about mobility. You know, once again, this you know roots. I'm thinking about mobility, so I'm working on some kind of project about train travel and food and race in the American West. So um, that's maybe as as much as I want to say about it, but um, (laughs) something about mobility and trains and food. So we're going to keep moving. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, How would you link this book, Getting What We Need Ourselves, with the other one that's out right now, whose title has now escaped me? Every Nation Has Its Dish, Black Bodies and Black Food in 20th Century America. So... 
every nation has its dish. You know, that was my academic monograph. That's my full professor book, right? So, you know, as soon as as soon as I hear from the Board of Regents, I mean, I think I've, I've been promoted based on every nation has its dish. So, you know, that's the book, Jumping Through the Academic Hoops. And that, that project was one that I've been working on for a decade. It's a really detailed look at food as politics for 20th century African Americans. I think, um, I'm thinking about food as a way to perform um, nationalism, either black nationalism or kind of an American, putting quotes around that, nationalism. Um, it just it goes from the late 19th century up through the era of soul food. So what getting what we need ourselves sort of allowed me to do is take that really detailed, more self-consciously academic study and put it in kind of a bigger and broader frame. So getting what we need ourselves. I owe so many debts to all of the scholars of African-American food history who, you know, wrote the stuff that I drawed upon that helped me create this broad portrait of eras that I haven't studied in great detail, like this slave experience, for example. So um, that, I guess that's what I would say is it's a more detailed look at one particular moment versus the big picture of getting what we need ourselves. And finally, sort of exciting news at University of North Texas, you all have received the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts, a fellowship. You've just appointed your first fellow. Um, That's right. Say a little bit more about that program. So at UNT, we have been working really hard to build up a concentration in food history. And we, in fact, in our history department, we have 35 faculty in the fall and nine of us have some interest in food history, either teaching or research. So pretty significant. And it's also, we've gotten food history approved as an examination field. So our doctoral students can come and they can do a field in food history. And then we also very excitingly, as you mentioned, got the Julia Child Foundation to support, help us support a fellow in food studies. So in the fall, we are going to have our first Julia Child Foundation fellow. Joshua Lopez is his name. Um, he was a master student of the wonderful Meredith Abarca who um, food studies work. Um, many people might be familiar with Voices in the Kitchen. And he is interested in Latinx queer food histories. So where exactly his research is going to take him, I don't know. But he's a wonderful writer, really creative thinker, and he's somebody to watch out for. That's excellent. So thanks for that update. Um, the book is Getting What We Need Ourselves, How Food Has Shaped African-American Life. Uh, just came out in June of 2019. Uh, congratulations on the book, Jennifer. Well, thanks so much, Carrie. It was really great to talk to you. Yeah, and I hope we get to speak again soon. Me too. <laughs>